although this first story is fiction, it's repeated over and over in our churches and in our families on a regular basis, and it's scary. Um, Sue, not you, Sue, the made-up Sue, uh, was, was born in a home where her parents had no relationship with Christ, was born in a, in, in a place where uh, God's name was never mentioned, not even on Christmas and Easter. It was a swear word. And she grew up in this environment, and her, this mindset of her parents was passed on to her. So she, as she was growing up, she really had no identity of, of who she was as a person. This is, this is what she saw at home all the time, being degraded and humiliated, and, and she had no identity, nothing to look up to, and nothing to pattern her life after. Until one day, um, she, was, she was invited by a friend to go to a Christian concert, and she didn't know what to expect, so she went, and while she was there, she just saw something different. The people were so friendly, they, they had a joy in their life that, that she had never experienced before. It began to get her to start questioning, what is all this about? So she called her friend next week and said, listen, I want to go to church with you. Is that okay? So she went along with her friend. And within a few weeks of hearing God's word and, and just listening, get, get, absorbing all this, she made a profession of faith, and, and it radically changed Sue's life to the point where she was now hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and she was overwhelmed by God's love and his peace in her life. And, and she started doing uh, mission trips and helping out at, at the soup kitchens around the city and, and being involved at nursing homes and Sunday school and nursery. Wherever she could get in, she was wanting to get plugged in as a young woman. Then she met Daryl. The man of her dreams. She was at a conference and she met Daryl. And, and they hit it off right away. They both loved the Lord. They got, within a year, they got married. And they loved where God was taking them as a, as a couple. They loved serving together. They, they just were thrilled with what was going on. And they were a blessing to their church. And, and their love grew. Their love for the word of God was, was enormous. Well, then some problems began. They tried to get pregnant, but couldn't. And as this going on year after year, she began to question, began to doubt, God, why, what, what is going on? Why, am I, why can't I get pregnant? And she thought that God was letting her down. She had these goals and these plans of serving God together with her husband. They were godly goals. They were goals that anybody would like to have. Finally, they, they started talking about adoption and they adopted two bro a brother and a sister. And, and they were lovely kids, and, and they were going on. And, and, and lo and behold, in less than a year of adopting these two kids, she found out she was pregnant for her own little girl. They were thrilled. They couldn't believe it. As time went on, when a, just a year later after their baby was born, their four-year-old, by now, began to act out, began to display attitudes and, and rebellion, and, and the mother tried to shelter the two girls from this temper tantrums and all of the stuff that was going on, but she couldn't. It was in the home. By the time he was 18, he landed in jail, and when the two girls grew up, they moved out. They were also struggling with their relationship with the Lord in the fact that that. They saw their brother going this way, and they were getting into trouble themselves. Not to the point of getting put in jail, but to the, to the concern and, and 
you know, just heartbreak of, of Sue and Daryl. They were going on. Well, Sue started feeling lost, alone, and she stopped keeping her house neat like she always did. She stopped going out and being involved in, in the ministries. She stopped doing this and that, and this, the hunger and thirst for the Word of God was not there anymore. And it was especially hard for her when she went out and she hung out with people whose kids were doing well. It threw her deeper into depression, and it caused a lot of heartache, and she fell, she became a recluse, and, and there was nothing her husband could do to help her to get out of this. What was happening, she kept asking herself in her mind. And what was causing this woman who was once a vibrant Christian, somebody who hungered and thirsted after righteousness, who loved serving God to become a recluse and to fall into depression? Or what about Chad? This one is a true story. The name's been changed to protect the guilty. Um, Chad was raised in a godly home. Parents loved the Lord. They served in the church, and, and they were loving parents, and they only wanted what was best for him and the, his brothers. His dad saw that he was very athletically inclined, and he told him, he said, son, I don't want you to get into every sport and do mediocre at each one. I want you to pick one sport and thrive in that and do that because that's the way God has wired you and, and we want you to, to, to pick one. So he chose football. Chad fo chose football. He lived, ate, dreamed, slept. Everything was football from as a child when he started playing in the peewee leagues and and, and going on, he could not wait for practices. His first year of high school as a freshman, he couldn't wait for the two-a-day practices. He loved them. He loved watching the films. He loved studying the pictures and, and everything. He, he just absorbed all this stuff in. His first two years, it was a small high school, and they only had one team, and there was a lot of kids that wanted to play, so he didn't get to play much his, his uh, freshman and sophomore year. But his junior year, here it was, his junior year, he was the big man on campus now. It was his turn. Am I off? Oh, I thought you scared me for a minute. I thought I forgot to turn it on. Whenever he walks this way, I think, what do I do now? <laughs> All right, thank you. But as he got in, in, into his junior year, he said, this is it. He used to take his uniform home, stand in front of the mirror with it on, and just admire, ah, football, I love this. It was, it was, it was him. Then it happened. The last full day of practice before the first game that he was going to start as a linebacker. He was, they were running the practices and everything, and somebody came around and clipped him in the knee, and he heard something pop. He laid on the ground, and they took him off on a stretcher, took him to the hospital, and he was examined by a specialist. And the news came back that he would never play football again. When this happened... He said to himself, he said, you know what? I'm not like other guys. I can work through this. I think I'm stronger and I'm different than the rest of the people who've had the similar injuries. By my senior year, I'm going to be back on the field. So he worked. He tried as hard as he could. He tried to shake this off and, 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 and worked on, on recovery and everything, but the prognosis was the same. You're not going to play football again. After a couple years, Chad began to suffer from, from pain in his stomach, and he went to the doctor, and, and he said, you've got ulcers. You've got ulcers. The doctor was a wise man, and he said to Chad, he says, whatever it is at the root of your problem, you better deal with it in your heart 
or this is going to kill you. What was it for these two people that caused them to struggle so much? One author puts it, an author that I read, he calls it identity amnesia. That's what I named this message today is identity amnesia. Sue had become identity amnesiac. And, and it, was, it, was, it was just getting really bad. Let me, let me, she forgot who she was in Christ. The things that gave her identity in the beginning no longer were a part of her life. She allowed the problems that she was having with her children to rob her of the joy that she experienced in the Lord. She began to focus on how to keep her kids out of trouble and pacified more than her relationship with the Lord. So her devotional time slipped away. Chad, football became who he was. That's who he was. And when that was taken away from him, he didn't know how to live. He didn't know who he was because that's who he was going to grow up to be a football player. And he was going to really excel in that. And it was taken away. And he fell into depression. I've been frustrated over the years. As, as being in ministry for over 35 years now, seeing people who be, get saved and they, and they get on fire for God and they're serving. They, we, you know, we see people serving down at Riverside and, and in teaching Sunday school and, and doing all these things that they're excited about the word of God. And, the, and it's, it's evident in their life that they hunger and thirst after righteousness begin to fade away. What is it? It's not burnout. What is not this? What is it that causes them to begin to question God's sovereignty in their life, to begin to question whether they are uh, truly saved or not? Was it just a fad I was going through that, that I'm really not saved, that, I, that I'm just faking it all these years? So what is it? And why is it that there are people in in, in, our, in our church who have suffered major setbacks, death in the family, cancers, uh, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things, financial crises and things like that, but still have a love and a joy for the Lord. But yet there's people who have seemingly insignificant issues come up in their life and they begin to doubt and question of God's sovereignty in their life. What is it that causes that? Why is it that people do this and they, they, they lose sight of, of their, their, who they are? Well, today I want to look at a passage in 1 Peter. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter. You have your notes there, blank sheet of paper, basically. Um, with, and we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. A couple verses there, but I want to read a section in verses, starting in verse 1. Through 12, I want to read those that, to set the groundwork for what we're going to talk about. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, So put on or put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy 
priesthood to offer sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a, and a, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They, stum they stumble. Why? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. As we look at these verses here, um, Paul wrote these verses, or Peter, wrote these verses at a time in history that was very difficult. Jesus had become something of an offense. He began to trip people up. He began, Jesus, when, when uh, people, he became uh, you know, really evil again. The people persecuted the Christians. They disobeyed. It says in the verse there that they disobeyed his commands. And they began to persecute those, anyone who followed Christ. So there's persecution going on. And it was easy for those early young believers to say, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm going to give up. I'm going to go back to the way I was. And so Paul, uh, Peter, it's, it takes the time to hear to share some incredible riches that they had and who they are through the work of Jesus that Jesus did on the cross. And this should remind us and encourage us uh, of the value that God places on each of us okay, as, we, as we work through this portion so I want to start, and we're going to only cover two verses, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to cover some points that you'll be able to write down there. Um, let's read those two verses again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we need to remember as we're going through this that Paul, Peter, I keep saying Paul. Was Mary going to show in there too? Peter, Paul, and Mary, I don't know. But, um, but it's Peter that wrote this. And we need to remember that as Peter was writing this, he was writing to a group of Gentiles that were struggling through this persecution. And he kept taking these Gentiles who never learned the, the scriptures from the Old Testament. He was taking them back to the Old Testament and showing them and reminding them of who God and how God views them. So what I want to do is I want to take each of these, these and, and show you from the Old Testament where Peter's getting this from, but also in the New Testament where, he promised, where these promises are still true for us also. Okay? So the first one is a chosen race. And a chosen race is 
you have to go back into the Old Testament. God chose Abraham and he promised to bless him and make him a great nation that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Prophecy. Perform, you know, all the families of the earth. That means you and I, all the Jews, the Gentiles, everywhere, anyone in the world would be blessed through Abraham. God thus began the, the Jewish nation. So we see in Deuteronomy, it's up on the screen, Deuteronomy 10, 15, it says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love for our fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all people as you are this day. So above all the people, Abraham didn't say, God, I want to I be blessed. I want to do this. No, God said, Abraham, I want you. He chose him to, to, to start this nation that the whole earth would be blessed through them, through the Jewish nation. And he took the initiative. This shows us that God takes the initiative of bringing people to himself and blessing them. It's not us. It's God reaching down and taking us. So let's look in the New Testament. How is this emphasized in the New Testament? We look as a privilege that we have of being part of the church. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if we stopped right there and let you go home right now, that's a lot to think about and mull over, but there's more. There's more things that God reveals in his scripture about us. First, that he, we are a chosen race, that, that God reached down and he's touched us. He predestined us. He said, you know, turn to me. I, I, I've seen you before the foundation of the world, and I want you to be holy, and I want you to, to flourish and be blameless before me. The second thing he says is that, that we are a royal priesthood. Peter's reminding us that we are serving as, as priests in a royal family. This isn't, when we were adopted into Christ, we weren't adopted as, as maidservants positions or servants positions. We are a royal priest. And that comes with all the benefits, but also all the responsibilities. And so as we look at that, we see this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, and for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the works, words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, as they're going through Moses is leading the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt into the promised land, and he has an encounter with God, and he says, listen, this is what you need to tell the people. You follow me. It's very simple. Uh, and, and, and you will be my treasured possessions. You're going to be for me. You shall be a kingdom of priests. These are what we need to hear. So that's a special task that he is, has given them to follow and walk and obey. But what about us? Look in Revelation chapter 1, starting in the second half of verse 5, 5 and 6 here, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of a, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
So here in Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that how God has chosen them and, and causing us to be royal priests before him, to serve in his court. Now, a couple weeks ago, well, last week, the Pope was here, right? If you worked in New York or Philadelphia, they canceled schools for three days because of all that was going on down there. When he came into the country, he was welcomed as royalty. He was welcomed with bands and parades and, and millions of people wanted to at least get a glimpse of him. I, I have some, my son-in-law's um, family are all, all Catholic and they got tickets to go see him in New York at Madison Square Garden to participate in the mass with him and to try and get close enough to get a picture. And, and the people that, that he came alongside as he's driving his motorcade and he says, stop in here, I wanna visit these people. And, and he went into the orphanages or schools or whatever it was he went to, the people were just thrilled. They said, wow, here's the Pope, he's right here by me. You know, that's us. I wouldn't wanna be the Pope. I'm, I'm happy in my skin, the way I am right now. But, but we think that, that that when people would sacrifice so much to get, a, uh, to get near him, he was viewed as royalty. Well, God says that we are a holy priest, whoever you are. You are before God. He sees you as holy. That's who we are. And we need to live that way. So as it says in Revelation that we are the priests of his God and Father, uh, we are God's representatives. So the question we ask is, are, am I a good representative? Am I a good priest? Or do I bring shame to his name? What kind am I? There's not any in between. No mediocre or sort of. It's either one or the other. You're either bringing glory or you're bringing shame. So this is what he says. This is who we are. The third thing he says that we are a holy nation. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, and now we are a holy nation. And remember, Paul is talking to the church here, and in this is a reminder that God has chosen us to be set apart as a church. We're set apart. He's taken us. Uh, he's made us a holy nation, the church. And you are a part of the church, so that means that you are a part of that holy nation. You are that holy nation. It looks in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for, for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. He chose you guys. He chose Abraham, and he's chosen you. Out of all the people in the world, he chose you to be his part of his holy nation there. And we look in the New Testament, we see in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what he's done. That's who we are. We are a holy nation that he has set apart. He's chosen us and said, here, I want you to live right here. I want you to be born to these parents. I want you to have these children. I want you to have not have these children. I want you to be uh, here because this is where, I th where you can serve the best because that's the way I created you to do. 
where I have you. And so he goes on. I think my favorite one is, is the next one. It says that we are a people for his own possession, a people for his own possession. Again, in, we look in Deuteronomy 7, 6. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. He's chosen you to be his, his uh, people for his own possession. Now, the emphasis on God's ownership, this is, this, he emphasizes this over and over, that God's ownership on our lives. And throughout the history of the Bible, you see this, that, that God has claimed for himself his own people and his prized possessions. And Christians are a people for God, for God to possess. And, and God takes ordinary people like you and me and turns us into something of value. We are worth something to God, and he has a plan and a purpose for, for us to fulfill. Now, we're not worthy of God because of who we are. We're worthy of God because of what he did in us and through us. So how does this, how does this look like in everyday life? A few years ago, there was an auction that, that featured uh, sports memorabilia. And there was this old um, Little League uniform and a, and a pair of old sneakers that when just looking at them, there was really no value to them until you find out who wore them. The Little League uniform was worn by Dan Quayle, our 44th vice president, when he was in, 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 in playing Little League. And the sneakers belonged to the number one basketball player in the whole world. Who? Jordan. Michael Jordan. They belonged to him. It instantly, it changed the value of that old uniform and those dirty sneakers because of who wore them. For those of you who don't know Dan Quayle, he had a hard time spelling potato in school. <laughs> he wanted to put an E in it. And, and, uh, uh, but anyways, that was, that's what he's remembered for. He didn't know how to spell. But uh, immediately, they take those, that uniform and those dirty sneakers, and, and they become something that anybody in a, uh, that collects memorabilia would love to have in their collection because of who wore it. And that's the way that, that we are with God. Peter em repeatedly emphasizes the term people in this section of Scripture to show us that even though you and I are just ordinary, normal people in everyday life, he takes that and places intrinsic, intrinsic value on us because of his, what he's done for us and how he's chosen us. We have a now an immense value because we belong to him and we're possessed by him. The Holy Spirit lives inside us. So why is this important? We got to continue on with verse 9 there. Let's look at that verse 9 again. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what are these excellencies that he's talking about? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus can do in the lives of transforming lives of people who are living in darkness and have no hope for the future can now walk in his marvelous light and have eternal life and have a relationship with God, having hope, security, and a, and a, and a contentment in life 
because of what he did. Those are the excellencies that he's saying that you may proclaim. That's why he's doing all this for us. Because he's got a job for us to help people come out of the darkness into the light. And in both cases with Sue and with Chad, they allowed other things to create their identity instead of in Christ alone. When we do that, when we are not finding our identity in Christ, when we find it in our children, or we find it in uh, sports, or when we find it in, in uh, our job, or the type of house, or the cars that we have, that's our identity because people look up to you, then it opens us up to depression, opens us up to discouragement, because of what? Always the world, our families, our friends are going to disappoint us, are going to break our hearts, are going to not meet our satisfaction. I tell young people when I'm doing premarital counseling over and over, I said, you know, you guys are enamored with each other right now, and there's nothing that you can do that will change that love. You know, you guys are, are, are just glue, you know. But there's going to come a time in your relationship that he's going to say something that's going to make you cry. It's going to hurt your feelings, or you're going to do something that's going to offend him and that's going to begin to cause him to doubt your love for him. And it's going to happen because we are human. We have a sin nature that, that is not going to be gone totally until we are in glory. Amen? But if I, so when I do premarital counseling, Helen and I do it together lots of times, our focus is their relationship with God, that vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship will then begin to take care of itself as they are, they, nothing that happens around them in their relationship is going to thwart who they are in Christ. And so then they can have that hope because the world, the people, situations in life are always going to let us down. But when we continue to focus on Christ and who we are in him, he will strengthen us in our inner man and we'll be able to stand through all tribulation and trials that we're going to go through. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord, not in myself, in the strength of his might, not my might, his might. And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day. And having done all, stand firm. That's how it is. That's how we have to do it. It's not being strong in ourselves or in the strength of my might. Oh, I've got this nailed down. I can handle this. No, because that's when we're going to fall. When you think you're strong, what does it say? To take heed lest you fall. When we think we have this down. And that's what was happening with Chad and with Sue is that they began to take their eyes off of God and their security and their, their evidence of his life in them. And began, she began to be consumed by the, by the issues with the kids. And that was taking her away from her time with the Lord. That was taking her away from who she was in Christ. And with Chad, when his, his life was torn upside down because he no longer 
could play football. That's who he was. That's all he knew. Just to follow up, that man, Chad, is not his real name. He is now a pastor. He's a conference speaker because he got to the point where he realized, you know what? That was my idol. That's who I was. I have to change my thinking and now be conformed to his image and, and allow Christ to change my life. And so he goes on and, and we choose to look at. So I'd like to close by looking at verse 10. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I want to parallel that. Peter says this, but then um, P, uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. You didn't know anything about that. Having no hope and without God in this world. But, here's one of those, I love these things. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So for he himself is our peace. It's not me. And that's, when we get that nailed down, man, what joy. We were not a people, in verse 10, he says, you were once not a people, but now you are a people. Once you did not receive mercy, now you have received mercy. He says, my strength is in me. It's not in, you can't have it in yourself. We were no one, and now we're something. We were nothing before Christ, but now we're something. But it's not in ourselves, as he said over and over and over, be strong in the Lord, not in your own strength. In the power of his might, not mine. That we now, we can overcome through knowing him. So as trials come into our lives, this is a, this is the thing that we have to remember. When trials come into our lives, what are they? They are opportunities for us to grow in our relationship with him. Okay? He, he allows these things into our lives for a purpose. Now, I don't know if you remember the movie Evan Almighty, where Steve Carroll plays the part of Evan Baxter slash Noah. And uh, his wife, Joan, was struggling with this whole idea of him becoming Noah and the long hair and the old clothes and all these things. So she packed up the boys and left. And they had stopped at a restaurant to eat, and she had an encounter with God, played by Morgan Freeman. So watch this video and, and see how it applies to what we're talking about. Excuse me, can I get a refill, please? Coming right up. Are you all right? Yeah. No. It's a long story. Well, I like stories. I'm considered a bit of a storyteller myself. <laughs> My husband? Have you heard of New York's Noah? <laughs> the guy who's building the ark. That's him. I love that story. Noah in the ark. 
You know, a lot of people miss the point of that story. They think it's about God's wrath and anger. They love it when God gets angry. What is the story about then, the Ark? Well, I think it's a love story about believing in each other. You know, the animals showed up in pairs. They stood by each other, side by side, just like Noah and his family. Everybody entered the Ark side by side. But my husband says God told him to do it. What do you do with that? Sounds like an opportunity. Let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If they prayed for courage, does God give them courage? Or does he give them opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God saps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does it give them opportunities to love each other? Well, I gotta run. A lot of people to serve. Enjoy. All right. This is one of my favorite movies. Um, but in here, the, the application from this part is her focus had, had come off of who she was. Here she was, the husband of, of, of somebody that God wanted to use to save a community or to, to make a point to the government or something. I, I can't remember the exact theme of it, but she had lost sight of that, and she became, began to look at the situation, the troubles that he was causing the anger that was coming about all the people in the city. So she said, you know, I can't take this. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. Well, when she has a, an, an um, encounter with Almighty, Almighty God there, um, she, she's beginning to begin to think, okay, yes, when I, I married this guy for better, for worse, whatever happens, I am going to stick with him. And so as she, her focus is back in the right perspective. This is Hollywood, so it's not completely biblical, biblically sound, but in other words, we can apply it to ourselves in that as, as we see us for who we truly are in, in Christ, that if these trials come along, they are not to discourage us, not to, not to trip us up, not to cause us to doubt God, but to draw us closer to Him. Say, God, I can't handle this on my own. I can't do this. You've given me an opportunity to grow in my relationship with you. Show me how to do that. Show me how to live my life in a way that is, is pleasing to you. That these trials that I'm going through, these discouragements that I've had, are only to draw me closer to you. And as we look at that, as we think about that, we have to ask ourselves, we have, today is a day that we have to reevaluate who we are. Okay, our identity. Who are you really? Are you a teacher? Are you a construction worker? Are you a homemaker? Are you a nurse? Are you a, you name it. Is that who you are? Is that what makes you a person? Is that what keeps you motivated to live? Or are you a blood-washed follower of God who uses teaching, construction, homemaking, nursing, or whatever, to bring glory to Him and to fulfill your purpose in life by living that out that He's created you to do. 
we have to ask ourselves that question. And if, and if these things, these, these jobs, these, these sports, these uh, health, and these things were removed from our security, our relationship with God should not change. It shouldn't be any different than it was yesterday. And it's, it's important for us to remember that. Now, in your bulletin, you have a, a little bookmark. And on the one side, you have verses that talk about who I am in Christ. These are scripture verses that, that you can take, put in your Bible, and when you start feeling discouraged or you're feeling, you know, just take them out once in a while and look up these verses that I am God's child, I am Christ's friend, I have been justified, I am united with the Lord, I'm one spirit with him, and so on and so forth. And on the back is, is Satan's lies and God's truth, some of the things that, that he tries to throw at us. So take that and, and keep that handy for yourself. Also, out at the Welcome Center are these, these uh, little uh, these pieces of paper that have who I am in Christ. It looks like a bell. Christmas bell, but it just has scripture verses all the way down here. And, and take that and put it up on, on your mirror, or put it up on your fridge, or someplace where you see it, in your office or whatever, and just remember uh, who you are. I, I saw somebody, Matthew uh, Millen, has, in his office, he's got a big one blown up, and it's framed, and uh, he has it up on top of his, his bookshelf there that he can see this often, and reminds us of who we are in Christ. So how is it that people who struggle can keep focus on who they are, can keep their hearts right before God, and then other people don't? I think it comes right back to what we're talking about today is that they lose sight. They take their eyes off. When Peter was walking on the water, as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was able to walk on the water. Waves were crashing around him. But as soon as he took his eyes off, he sank because his focus wasn't on Christ, because he wasn't focusing on the right thing. He was focusing on the things around him instead of where he needed to be. I want to close with this portion of Scripture. It's, it's a portion of Scripture that really sums, sums up this whole thing, and this is one that I would recommend memorizing. It's Psalm 61, verses 1 to 5. It says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer from the ends of the earth. I call to you with when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. That's what God's done. But I like that verse in verse 3 it said, where it says, For you have been my refuge. He remembers back. He's remembering back. God, you have been my refuge in the past. I need to be there again. I need you to comfort me. I need you to strengthen me. I need to go back to that place where I remember what you did for me in my life.